shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, here it is, and once again, it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero. So we're getting some rain up here this week, and uh, a lot of people are being hit by the storm. So hopefully you, uh, the fans out there, haven't washed away. But speaking about being washed away, I really don't know what that means. Here he is, <laughs> our good friend, Kelly Grayson. <laughs> Kelly, how are you? I'm good, man. Just, uh, just got back from the Metro Atlanta EMS conference. That's right, the world tour. The world tour. Yeah. How did it go? It was, it was great. Metro Atlanta is doing a great job with their conference. They were able to, they were able to double their attendance from last year, and uh, and still offered at national speakers and and great vendors and and great education for twenty five bucks a person. Um, we're going to have those guys on one day soon and, and Alabama EMS conference, uh, those organizers, the Alabama EMS association was able to resurrect their EMT conference after a, a 15 year hiatus. Uh, and they had a, had a fairly good turnout. They had maybe 150 people and, and look to build on that again next year. So, you know, there's nothing I like better than going to, especially small EMS conferences, uh, and, and talking to people about, what it is that we do that just gives me it recharges my batteries in a big way sure we probably need to come up with the uh chris and kelly world tour and uh do a little tag team at these conferences what yeah, do you think that's it yeah you and i yeah you and i need to do a uh we need to do a a, a co-teaching all right well we'll think we'll coordinate it and uh see what we can come up with well, but yeah, let's uh, do that. you know i think we got a really great show here today we've yeah. kind of not talked about clinical issues for a bit because there's been just so many news there's so many great news stories as well as we've had some good guests on. But today we're going to go and we're going to have a clinical issue and we're going to discuss pediatric assessment. I think it's one of those things that, uh, you know, we really need to spend a lot of time on. And I wrote an article for EMS One a few months back that talked about the, the, the EMS chief or the supervisor's responsibility in getting people ready to deal with pediatric assessments. Because when you yeah. have a mother that hands you a three-month-old that's in cardiac arrest, that's not the time to figure out you're not comfortable with that situation. And we've got to do everything we can to prepare for that. But before we do that, I think that there's a related story yeah. that we want to try to uh, give a little traction to this topic. So, Kelly, I'm going to kick it to you and uh, have you uh, share it with the listeners. This this story comes out of uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia. A uh, two firefighters, including one of them a captain from with Falmouth Volunteer Fire Department, uh, were suspended briefly for their actions in in treating a pediatric seizure patient, a toddler with seizures. Um, what they were suspended for was they transported the toddler in a fire truck rather than wait for an ALS ambulance to assess her and treat her. Um, Got there and, and the family was panicked and the toddler was apparently postictal and, and according to the firefighters, a bit cyanotic on scene. And rather than wait for ALS backup uh, and a, a capable transport unit, they tossed the toddler unsecured into the back of a uh, uh, fire truck and, and hauled butt to the hospital. Um, and I, I don't agree that they should have been suspended. But I do think in reinstating them, the chief uh, made uh, missed a, a major opportunity to take advantage of a teachable moment. The, the two firefighters, Captain James Kelly and Sergeant Virgil Bloom, handled the call, and uh, and they said that the uh, ALS unit was, was a ways out, and they, they couldn't wait. 
Um, but I think what we're looking at here is a case of quadruple P syndrome. Uh, that's a panicky provider pediatric patient syndrome. Did you and, did you make that up? Is that, yeah, I made it up. It, but no, so I, I stole it from somebody else, okay. like most of my best lines. So um, what does it stand for again? The, the, what is it, the four Ps? Yeah, the quadruple P syndrome, panicky provider, pediatric patient. Ah, okay. And it's it's not something that just afflicted Captain James Kelly and Sergeant Virgil Bloom. This is not something that that affects only volunteer firefighters who don't run many pediatric patients. It's an EMS-wide thing. Uh, there were, have been a number of, of surveys and national registry surveys talking about uh, scarcity of, of quality pediatric uh, EMS training uh, and and also pointing to the fact that uh, our most uh, stressful calls always involve pediatric patients. So uh, there's a dearth of training out there, and, and EMS providers do not feel comfortable dealing with pediatric patients, and that leads us to our, uh, our clinical topic today. What's different about pediatric assessment and, and how we might uh, approach assessment of the pediatric patient uh, in the field? Yeah, and I got to agree with you. I, I was the past chair for the EPC course for NEMT, and one of the things that uh, I really enjoy about the emergency pediatric course is that it gives you the knowledge base necessary to take on this special population. And, and you know, we've heard for a lot of years, Kelly, and I know I did when I was uh, learning pediatrics, that you know, kids are small adults and we need to treat them like small adults. And, and we now know that that's false and we've yeah. got to be able to treat this special population with confidence, with skill and with experience. Now I go back to you and I say, well, wait a minute, you know, we spend how many hours of, of training in school on cardiology and how many hours on respiratory? And then we spend a, a fraction of that time dealing with uh, pediatric medical emergencies and, and those types of challenges. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to change the paradigm of how we are dealing with pediatric calls. And, and you know, you bring up the four Ps and, and you know, you kind of say that tongue in cheek, but the, the biggest trepidation that EMS providers have is when they deal with the, uh, you know, the pediatric patients. So I ask you this question, Kelly, as an educator. So if we know that we have weakness, if we know that we have challenge when it comes to dealing with pediatric assessment, and, you know, it's, it's because of one, I don't think we get a, a, a good enough education in, in initial training. I don't think we focus enough about it on continuing education, too. But if we know that it's a weakness in our career field, why aren't the providers doing more to learn how to deal with this special population? And I, I'm really curious about that question. Well, I, I think we are. Uh, I think we are. I just don't think it's uh, as widespread as it needs to be. First of all, I think pediatric education needs to be a, a good deal more extensive in initial curricula uh, or in in our uh, EMS education guidelines. Uh, we need to, to augment that a little bit. Uh, and I think it's better now than it was in the past. Um, but as far as, as – uh, renewal and recertification and continuing education, you know, that, that topic is, is addressed in the National Continued Competency Program. There are a minimum number of pediatric hours in there. And, you know, in my brief career as a state-level EMS bureaucrat, uh, that is one of the few things that I'm, I'm proud of, of doing is that I, I taught hundreds upon hundreds of PALS classes over my career, and two of those were uh, 200 of those uh, minimum were taught for the state. 
and later when I became Louisiana's EMSC coordinator, uh, we were instrumental in getting a, a minimum uh, level of pediatric specific equipment uh, added to the required equipment list on the ambulances and uh, adding a minimum number of pediatric specific continuing education hours to our uh, biannual recertification requirements. So Louisiana for, for many years had an additional eight hours on top of uh, the National Registry Standard uh, Refresher course that was specific for EMS uh, for pediatric content. Um, but I think the biggest thing uh, that we need to do is is uh, skill building and confidence building. We make this more stressful and scarier than it need to be. Um, when it comes right down to it, most of the pediatric patients we deal with are panicky parent syndrome. Uh, and the ones that aren't the, the did very you make, sickest, did you make that one up too? No, that, that oh, okay. one's, that okay. one's, yeah, it, oh. everybody's used panicky parent syndrome. Um, but even, even the ones that are truly critically ill, the interventions necessary to manage them are straightforward, simple things. They are, it's not rocket surgery to, to deal with a critically ill pediatric patient. The first step check a pulse, your pulse. And if it's faster than 100, you need to take a few deep cleansing breaths and get yourself together because you're not going to help the situation. Right. But other than that, calm down. Don't move faster than your brain will allow uh, and, and take a methodical approach to pediatric assessment. Um, yeah, use I all think the cheat sheets as well, you know, things like the Braslow tape and the hand-heavy uh, pediatric box and, and those sorts of things. Any kind of thing to augment our capabilities and take uh, the guesswork and the math calculations and everything out that are so stressful in pediatric dosing and, and sizing uh, concerns, take that out. There's no shame at all in using the cheat sheet. And matter of fact, I, I think it's a badge of pride that you use the cheat sheet and know when to do it. Yeah. And I think that's some of the things that you need to think about as well Is this is where critical thinking comes in. And, uh, you know, not allowing, you know, I like how you said that check a pulse yours. And if it's uh, faster than hundred, you know, step back and, uh, you know, take a deep breath, but let's talk about some of the differences now in, in the pediatric patient compared to an adult. And, and I'm going to rattle some off Kelly and, and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of keep your uh, ear open and uh, jump in uh, on things that I'm missing. But first off their body surface area for their weight, uh, mm -hmm. makes them susceptible for hypothermia. So ensure oh, yeah, that. They temp, they shed temp like like nobody's business. The little guy, the little babies, uh, and the pediatrics, uh, they're they're basically their nose breathers. And if so, mm -hmm. if you go into a, a house, and the the patient's all snotty, um, and they're a little bit cyanotic, you clean their nose out, and that's probably going to help a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I think is important is their tongue is relatively small, so is their nasal passages. So if anything's going to be blocking in their way, mm -hmm. it's going to cause some breathing difficulty. Of course, shortened narrow trachea for children yeah. that are under five. Higher um, glottis, larger tongue in, in relation to their oral uh, their, their oral cavity. Yeah. Makes um, them susceptible yeah. for foreign body airway obstructions. Mm -hmm. Or uh, poor positioning. Much more, much more dependent on, on good positioning than an adult would be. Abdomen provides very, very poor protection for their liver, spleen, making them susceptible for trauma. And their uh, bladder is also up in their belly rather than down in the pelvic girdle like an adult's would be. 
Exactly. Now, one of the things that you have to remember, too, is we talk about and we teach our, our medics that when you do your assessment and your assessment doesn't really change, the only thing that you're not going to be able to do is you're not going to be able to talk to the patient to ascertain uh-huh. how they're feeling or what their symptoms are. That's where mom's going to come in. But if you know, and this is where the pediatric assessment triangle comes in, because uh-huh. if you know what a, what a normal baby should look like, you know what a sick baby looks like. Exactly. So, one of the things to, to remember, though, and I like to always teach this to the paramedics, until 12 or 18 months of age, kidneys do not concentrate the urine effectively, and, and they don't exert optimal control over that electrolyte secretion and that absorption. So just because you're not seeing those wet diapers doesn't necessarily mean that um, there's a challenge, but you do have to pay attention to it when you're based on dealing with an assessment of somebody that may be having a fever or so you got to keep those things in mind i mean blood volume is uh, weight dependent and it's usually 80 milliliters per kilogram so you know you got to really cat now start to think about the science of how this special population is different you know when you and, and I, I know the diaphragm uh, up to about four or five years old and the primary breathing muscle co2 is not effectively expired when a child is distressed so now you start to think about metabolic acidosis. So there's just so many things now that as we think about the physiology of, of, of a smaller patient, of the things that we need to know that necessarily if we knew it, it wouldn't make us stressed on the back end. Yeah. Well, you mentioned diapers and, and urinary output and, and that, that brings to mind one history question I frequently will ask parents. Um, how many diapers have you gone through today? Because, you know, telling uh, or determining a, a, a toddler or infant's perfusion status and, and how well hydrated and, and uh, how well hydrated they are is, is sometimes problematic if you're looking at things like blood pressure and heart rate and, and those sorts of things. Um, we can't quantify urinary output in the field, but one of the things we can ask is mom how many diapers have you gone through today and is if so is how does that compare to normal that gives you at least an, an idea on on how well uh, they're perfusing because the kidneys are the windows to the viscera right um, you know if you're looking at a, a urinary output of two to four milliliters per kilogram per hour which you should be uh, you should be changing diapers pretty darn frequently um, and if that diaper has not been changed in a while and they haven't put out a lot pull it off and and smell it I know that sounds but uh, strong concentrated urine uh, is a, a pretty good indicator of the child. Now you're talking about doing that for the infant and not for uh, Uncle Timmy, who's in the back. Who's <laughs> That's right. Bed. Okay. That's right. So you know, and one of the other you things need, you don't need it to smell Uncle Timmy. Okay, uh, just check it because you know what smells, right? In the diaper off. Yeah. But here's one of the things as well. So I'm glad that you talked about you know questioning the parents because that's going to be the biggest knowledge for us is you know how the pediatric patient is uh, has been before this. One of the things that the providers out there need to think about is this. This may be the time. You've had a healthy infant up until this point. This may be the time now where chronic conditions will start to, uh, you know, happen. So questioning the family, uh, questioning the parents about family history is important. Is there heart disease? Is there, um, you know, diabetes? Is there any disease in the family that now could be congenital? That's now catching up to this kid at this point. And this may now be the introduction to a chronic condition that this kid is going to have for the rest of his life, namely 
big one is asthma and asthma mm-hmm. pops up, you know, uh, in those late in those earlier three to five year old range. And if there's some difficulty breathing, but there's a history of asthma that runs in the family, uh, this may be this kid's time that this happens. Yeah. And, and you can add to that juvenile onset diabetes, you know, that child who has been cranky and, and irritable and thirsty and peeing a lot. And now is, is comatose with abdominal pain. Um, or abdominal cramps, you, you may, with the flush skin, you know, check a blood sugar on that kid and, and uh, no telling how many of those we miss because we just don't think about uh, the possibility of, of diabetes. Um, but there are, I think, probably the, the biggest hurdle to get over in assessing pediatric patients, and once you do this, it makes every pediatric patient you assess uh, after that much easier is you have to get into the mindset that it's not about quantity, it's about quality. Right. When we assess adults, we want to know what the heart rate is. We want to know what the blood pressure is. We want to know what the respiratory rate is and the pulse ox. Uh, and, and if you're critical care, you want to know about lab values and you want to know this and that. And you, and you look at uh, specific cardiac rhythms, neurological assessment data, and numbers. You can always tell a an ICU an ICU nurse uh, when they get into a PALS class because for the first time because they are lost with this whole uh, assessing a holistic assessment and and across the room assessment and assessing the quality of an assessment finding rather than the specific numbers provided um, and and it's hard to get out of that mindset but once you do. And once you once you realize that the rate of breathing is not so important as the mechanics and the work of breathing, um, the heart rate and the blood pressure are not so valuable in assessment findings as the presence of distal pulses and the quality of distal perfusion, uh, that sort of thing, um, and compensation uh, for whatever uh, for whatever condition may be. Um, is usually indicated by the child's level of interaction. You know, if they're interacting appropriately, whatever the problem is, they're probably compensating for it right now. If they're no longer interacting appropriately with their environment uh, and their behavior is altered, it's a pretty sure bet that whatever's wrong with them, uh, be it neurological, cardiovascular, or pulmonary, whatever is wrong with them has already tipped over into the critical decompensating stage. Yeah, and once you get but, there, once you get there, it's it's very very late, yep. and there's probably no chance that you're going to be able to help the kids. Right. So that's why that's why speed is uh, of the essence, and you need to be able to ensure that you make a. And, and let's get right down to it, man. We know what a healthy baby looks like. We know what a healthy mm-hmm. toddler looks like, mm-hmm. and we know when these kids are sick. So you know, one of the things, and, and I'll ask you this question, Kelly, uh, after I give it uh, an answer. But when you walk in and when you see a kid. You're going to make the determination, is this kid, is this kid sick or not sick? Yep. And then if you say that the kid is not sick, you've got a little bit of time now to kind of make to, to do an assessment. When you do that mm-hmm. assessment, you want to be able to use your regular assessment skills yep. and then just use the parents where there needs to fit in some words and some background and knowledge. But mm-hmm. you know that the skills, you know the skills of doing an assessment because you do them every day. You may not do them every day on a pediatric patient, but follow your skills and be methodical to go mm-hmm. through your assessment skills. Now, if you look at the kid and you say, this kid is sick, maybe you need to speed things up a little bit and get them mm-hmm. to the hospital a little bit quicker. But this doesn't negate your responsibility 
in treating the patient. This in doesn't negate treatment. Yeah. Exactly. When's the last time you took a blood pressure on a pediatric patient and why? When's the last time you hooked a pediatric patient up to the cardiac monitor and why? And, and, and I'm saying and why, it's why not? Because we just don't think that, you know, they're too small, we're going to put the cuff on, blah, blah. Do it. Do the skills that you need to do because this is going to open your mind now to mm -hmm. some possibilities of what may be happening. You talk about uh, speed is, is of the essence. Um, it is, and, and you, you made an excellent point, but not at the expense of providing stabilizing treatment. When we've got a sick, a, a not sick kid, but a panicky parent, you slow down. You slow down, you smile a lot, you calm the parent down, you provide reassurance because honestly, they are your real patient, not the, not the child. You, you don't ignore the child, but in, in the child who is uh, not sick uh, and, and the parents are worried, the primary goal is to provide reassurance to the parents and let right. them know that their child is going to be okay. And Especially... Especially first-time parents. That's right. Oh, Second-time yeah. parents yeah. and third-time parents are watching the football game while you're dealing with the kid. Exactly. First-time exactly. parents are in a they're yeah. in a tizzy, man. But you know, one of the things to think about as well is 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 presentation of your uh, mm -hmm. patient when it comes to a physical assessment. Yeah. And, and you know, we could just pull out a couple of those things. The skin is a very very big indicator as to how this kid is perfusing and probably what's going on inside. So take that general assessment and the overall view of the baby, of the toddler, and and look at their skin. We just talked about it a little bit, how, how their surface area compared to their, their weight uh, is greater. And that's going to be a great visual to tell you how the kid is going to do, you know, skin and, and even check their lymph nodes. If that's something that you don't normally do is feel the lymph nodes, see, feel them and see if you feel any, uh -huh. uh, if they're swollen, uh, if they're tender, if you squeeze uh, the lymph nodes and the baby jumps or moves or whatever, when you do that or cries, there may be a challenge there, you know, and, and go through the, the regular process, just like your OPQRST, uh -huh. go through the regular process of doing your physical assessment. And I got to tell you, one of the things that I've counseled uh, EMTs and paramedics on the most is when we get people in our ambulances, we take for granted what they tell us and we don't do our own physical assessments mm -hmm. just because they think that they know what's going on. Yeah. Doesn't mean that that is what's going on. You need to make certain that when you have a patient in the back of your ambulance, when you're dealing with a patient in their homes, regardless of their age, you do your own physical assessment so you have the, the knowledge now to make the determination of what your working diagnosis is going to be. I think providers who tend to get panicked with pediatric patients, um, they, uh, they don't know how to eat an elephant, first of all, um, and, and they see the, the enormity of the problem and they just uh, they look at the size of the elephant and go, I'll, I'll never be able to digest all that. Uh, when what they need to do is keep their eyes on their plate and eat a bite at a time, and pretty soon uh, the elephant's gone. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> let me let me. I like that, but let me cut yeah. you off there. Even before you get to the point of taking the bite of the elephant, mm -hmm. you probably need to read and study about how to eat that oh, yeah. elephant. Yeah, and that's one of the things that. And let me tell you, and I've said this for a lot of years, man. I don't know if you noticed, Kelly, but EMS is a very egotistical business. Uh, no, no, I, I know, no, I know. Just I'm relax. The humble, I'm the most humble. I know you are. I know you. You are the exception to the rule. But I, the it's, humble medic. Ask it's, anybody. Yeah, it's the egotism 
that keeps us from asking the question why, because we don't know, we don't want to look like we don't know what we're talking about in front of our peers. If you know everything there is to know about EMS, raise your hand. So there's not many hands that are going up, and the people that put their hands up probably don't need to be EMTs or paramedics. But one of the things that you need to know is you don't know everything there is to know about EMS. So with that in your mind, and I'm sitting here Mm -hmm. saying with 30 years of experience, Kelly here is sitting here with 25 years of experience to say, if you know that that's the case, what are you doing to fix those challenges? What are you doing to fix those weaknesses? How are you preparing yourself for those calls when they will occur? And that's where the problem is in the career field sure. is the is the knowledge that we don't know what we're you know, we're not comfortable. We need to bone up on our skills, but we're not doing what we need to do to be ready to eat that elephant. Yeah. You know, and and, and there really is no excuse for it. Uh, there are there is a plethora of pediatric specific EMS training content out there on the Web for free. Go to any one of a number of different uh, online CME providers, and they'll uh, they'll you'll be able to find a a choice of pediatric specific content. CSPEAM's approved uh, CEU content. You can take it online. Um, there are courses out there that you can you can find and sign up for. PALS, Apples, PEP, EPC. Um, stable courses, uh, any one of a number of the card courses out there will will prepare you better for dealing with uh, ill pediat ill and, and critically ill pediatric patients. But I, I think you know you don't even need uh, or you don't have to have a card course to be able to function though. Going back to my uh, how to eat an elephant analogy, the first bite is step out of the ambulance, pause at the doorway, and look at the scene. Do an observational assessment of the child from 10 feet away, minimizing your interaction with them because that that observational assessment, we call it the pediatric assessment triangle, and just about every pediatric course includes it, is vital information. You get an idea of what that child's baseline status is before you start altering that baseline status by the act of a physical assessment. You get an idea of how sick that kid is from 10 feet away before you ever put your hands on. And once you've learned to think in that mindset and to use that pediatric assessment triangle, uh, it's ABCs, appearance, breathing work, circulation to the skin. And once you know how to to think in that uh, manner, um, then everything else after that is, is doesn't seem so scary, doesn't seem so urgent um, because the ones that are not scary, the the kids that that have a fairly normal appearance and a manageable problem, you know that it's not so time sensitive that you have to do all sorts of ALS interventions on the scene and, and in the back of the ambulance. Mainly, it's supportive care and a safe, comfortable ride to the hospital and, and assurance of the parents. Uh, but the ones that are truly sick, the vast majority of the procedures that will do the most good are BLS. They're BLS. I mean, Chris, when's the last time you, or how many times in your career have you synchronized cardioverted a pediatric patient? Yeah, I got to think maybe three times in 30 yeah, years. In yeah. 30 years, you know. And that's I've, probably I've, not 30 because we weren't doing that yeah, earlier on. But I've synchronized cardioverted two infants uh, or a child, in, one child, one infant in my entire career. Uh, and, and seen VTAC and a couple more and, and uh, it converted itself thank god it was just a brief run of it right. uh and 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 the number of 
of intravenous medications I have given to pediatric patients, and I dealt with a lot of them. You know, I was the the pediatric guru at the services that I worked at, um, and, and the one they called for all the pediatric critical care transfers. Is that because you know, you're a child yourself? Yes, I'm. Okay. I'm developmentally stuck at age seven, and that's why kids love me. They know that's I'm awesome. just a big, big, fat, three hundred and fifty pound. Oh come on now! Don't don't put yourself, uh, no negative self talk here. I'm cute. Oh, it's not. That's actually positive self talk. And, and but you know, as you now start to think about growing your knowledge, as you now start to think about feeling mm-hmm. comfortable with the ability to uh, deliver care, I do want to. I do want to switch gears a little bit, and I want to touch on the components of pediatric arrest. Yeah. One of the things that we deal with uh, that's truly horrible is the pediatric arrest. And it's horrible for the family. It's horrible for the first responders. It's horrible for the providers. And how many times have you been met uh, at the front of the ambulance with a child by a firefighter who's uh, bringing you a, a pulseless and apneic pediatric patient? They're not treating the patient inside. They just want to get them off the scene. Now, you may be you may fall into that trap of wanting to scoop the kid and get him going as quickly as possible. But I urge you, and one of the things that Dr. Peter and Tevi mm-hmm. sh- shares with us is stabilize the patient on scene. Yeah. You have more You have more of a chance of getting return of spontaneous circulation with a pediatric patient when you're on scene and you're managing that care. One of the things that I used to do as a best practice when I went to a pediatric arrest is I would open my flip chart and I would look at a few things. I would look at automatically... The tube that I would use to intubate, the size based on the years, I would look on the first and second dose of epinephrines uh, based in years. And of course, that doesn't mean that the kid is going to be that age when you get there, so you may need to adjust that dose. But if you need some time to work the child on the scene, give yourself that that bump while your partner's driving that you go through the flip book to say, okay, I need to place a three tube. My first dose of epi is this. My second dose of epi is this. And if I need to go through the next phase, the medication, this is what that dose is going to be. Prepare yourself to stabilize the patient, have good CPR, and get that return of spontaneous circulation. But don't scoop and run. Stay on scene. Dr. Antevi, isn't that right? I know he's not here, but hopefully we can get his comment down below when we uh, post this on Facebook. But one of the things that we've got to do is feel comfortable with working the arrest on scene. And that's something we don't do. Mm-hmm. And that's why we grab them and we get them in the ambulance and take off right away. You said it. You said it uh, very well. Uh, and Pete said it uh, extremely succinctly. Why is it that we don't afford pediatric patients the same fighting chance at a resuscitation as we do adults? We work adults on scene and we scoop and run with pediatric patients. And there is absolutely no reason for it other than fear and lack of confidence. We are fearful of doing things in front of parents, uh, and we're fearful of crying and upset parents, uh, and we're fearful of our own ability uh, to manage a pediatric patient. Therefore, we don't want to do it in public for certain. So get in the back in the privacy of my ambulance and, and haul butt to the hospital real fast so make it someone else's problem. That is not going to do the child any good. I'm not going to use the term stay and play, but you need to calm down, slow down, stabilize, because time spent on scene to sweeten up a rhythm or to make sure that a, a pulse once regained stays there uh, and you communicate well with the family is going to pay big dividends 5, 10, 15 minutes or, or days down the road. Um, 
slow down, work your calls on scene and give that child the fighting chance of survival. And if your protocols don't allow that, then educate yourself on pediatric resuscitation I like and it. start advocating for better protocols. Yeah. If your and protocols that, don't allow that, there's one reason for that, because your medical director does not trust you to think. So prove to him that you can think and get your protocols changed. Or not not that he doesn't, uh, I'll go ahead and change that a little bit. He doesn't feel comfortable with your ability to manage that arrest. But well, it, but it, yeah, if, in pediatrics in, in specific, yes. Uh, but restrictive protocols in general, I, I'll stick by my earlier statement. They don't trust you to think. So one of the things, though, that I think, and as we start to get up here in time, and we can spend all day talking about this, but I think the the message that we want to share with you, and I'll give you my closing thought before I kick it here to Kelly, is if you know that this is one of your challenges, if you know that this is one of your weaknesses, what are you doing to turn this into a strength? You know, the the day that a mother hands you a, a six-month-old that's in cardiac arrest is coming. That's not, not the time. when. Exactly. That's not the time to figure out that you're not comfortable with that pediatric arrest. If you know that it's a challenge, you should be spending your time every shift working on those challenges, reading articles, you know, and, and, you know, EMS one has great articles, but you've got other great, you know, websites out there. As Kelly mentioned, Mm -hmm. take the time to learn what you need to learn to be comfortable with dealing with the assessment, dealing with the treatment, dealing with the management, dealing with the resuscitation. So this isn't such a trauma to you when you are now dealing with these patients. And one of the things that we deal with is we deal with a lot of guilt because we could have done more. We should have done more. What if we miss something? What if we, what if we, what if we get rid of the questions and put the knowledge in your head to fix it? Yeah. You know, and what I will add is to the mental preparation aspect is I would imagine when you were running calls regularly and you, you had that pediatric call came in uh, over the dispatch system and, and you were flipping through your pediatric uh, charts and your, your Braslow tape or your, your hand-heavy book, you probably knew most of those drug dosages and sizes by heart anyway, yet you flipped through them anyway. And that's part of your mental preparation that any right. professional does. Just as does. a refresher. Exactly. You know, an NFL kicker may have, have kicked a thousand kicks, but he's still going to prep for it the same way every time because it gets you in that zone. And that's what I would urge people to do is the mental preparation. And remember that the parents are as much a uh, patient as the, as the child themselves. So take care of the parents. Um, think about your actions. And remember that the more practiced you are and the more comfortable you are in dealing with the pediatric patients, the less scary it becomes in allowing those parents to remain with the child in the back of the ambulance as you're going to the hospital. It's not so scary a situation then um, if you are not doing dubiously beneficial things poorly in front of the parents uh, as witnesses. So keep that in mind as well. But hey, that's what I think. We'd like to hear what you think. So why don't you email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself, co-host Chris Sevalero, thanks for tuning in Inside EMS, and we'll catch you guys next week. <laughs>